0: Section 21 of Pitt by Archibald Primrose, Lord Rosebery. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 15, Part 1 Character and Position of Pitt. So passed Pitt. Cromwell and Napoleon yielded their breath amidst storms and tempests, but no natural convulsion could equal the political cyclone that raged round that lonely bed at Putney. All Europe lay at the feet of the enemy. The monarchs whom Pitt had leagued together in a supreme alliance were engaged either in negotiation or in retreat. The Prussian minister, ready for either event, had also hurried to the conqueror's tent to secure his friendship and a share of the spoil. There was not the vestige of a barrier to oppose the universal domination of Napoleon, but the snows of Russia and the British Channel. Well might Pitt, in a moment of despair, roll up the map of Europe. At home his prospects were no brighter. He had to meet Parliament with Trafalgar. Indeed, to his credit, but with Nelson dead, with Ulm and Austerlitz as the results of his continental combinations with a scanty and disheartening following. Arrayed against him and thirsting for his overthrow were the legions of Fox and Grenville and the domestic circle of Addington. His friends had no conception of any resource that could save him. Rose and Long competed in dismay, Pitt, however, did not seem greatly to trouble himself. He had defeated a more formidable coalition before, and he believed in himself. His calculation was probably right. With health, he would have maintained himself. His last reception in the city showed that he had preserved or regained his popularity with the people at large. He had a working majority in Parliament, and though his colleagues of the cabinet were flaccid and null, he had a boundless resource in canning his political son and political heir. Fox was not to live long, and after his death, even had Pitt once more failed to induce the king to receive him as a minister, the long-desired administration of all the capacities must have been formed. Of the private life of Pitt there is not much to be said, there are constant attestations of his personal fascination in that intimate and familiar intercourse which was the only kind of society that he enjoyed. He seems to have liked that country-house life which is the special grace of England. We find him visiting at Longleat and Stowe, at Whitcomb and Dropmore, at Sister and Wilderness, at Buckton and Shortgrove, at the villas of Hawksbury and Rose, and Long, and Dundas, and Addington. Here we find him indulging pro-pudor in a game of cards. Pope Joan and speculation or commerce, now relegated to children. In all these societies, he seems to have left but one unfavorable impression. A high-born spinster who met him at Dropmore says, I was disappointed in that turned-up nose and in that countenance in which It was impossible to find any indication of the mind in that person which was so deficient in dignity that he had hardly the air of a gentleman. If not tropes, I fully expected the dictums of wisdom each time that he opened his mouth. From what I then heard and saw, I should say that mouth was made for eating. This is a harsh judgment, on the other hand, one of the choicest ladies of the French aristocracy who met him during the Revolution expressed her delight in his grave and lofty courtesy, and long recalled the patient pleasure with which he heard French books read aloud. To the purity of his French, she also paid a tribute. Butler records that his talk was fascinating, full of animation and playfulness. Pitt said of Buckingham that he possessed the condescension of pride. It was said of his own manners in society that he possessed the talent of condescension, than which, if it means that he made condescension tolerable, there is perhaps none more rare. Curiously enough, he seems to have preserved his boyish spirits to the end. Miss Wynne, when she met him at Dropmore and drew the crude portrait just quoted, records the competition of unearthly howls raised by Pitt and the other assembled statesmen chasing a bird out of the drawing room, which disturbed her rest and possibly gave her an unfavorable bias. And Sir William Napier, who, as a young ensign, first knew Pitt in 1804, has recorded the romp when he and the young Stanhopes and Lady Hester succeeded in blacking the Prime Minister's face with a burned cork. The struggle was interrupted by the arrival of Hawkesbury and Castlereagh, and Napier graphically records the change that came over their playfellow as he received them, how the tall, ungainly, bony figure seemed to grow to the ceiling, while the secretaries of state bent like willows before him. Few without these testimonies would have suspected Pitt of being addicted to those sports known to the present generation as bear fights but it is certain that nothing could be more easy and familiar than the footing of that little set of people with whom he habitually lived, and who seemed to have been known among themselves as the firm or the gang. His friendship, although like all worthy friendship not lavishly given, was singularly warm and was enthusiastically returned. Nothing in history is more creditable and interesting than his affectionate and lifelong intimacy with Wilberforce, so widely differing from him in his views of life. Hardened politicians such as Rose and Farnborough were softened by their intercourse with him, and cherished his memory to the end of their lives with something of religious adoration. This, indeed, was the posthumous feeling which he seems to have inspired more than any other person in history. Even Sidmouth, who had loved him little during the last luster of his life, shared this and boasted that he had destroyed every letter of Pitt's which could cause the slightest detriment to Pitt's reputation. Canning Pitt loved as a son. There is nothing more human in Pitt's life than the account of his affectionate solicitude and absorption at Canning's marriage. Canning's love for Pitt was something combined of the sentiments of a son, a friend, and a disciple. The usual epithet applied to him is haughty. A truer light is thrown by the conversation which is recorded to have taken place as to the quality most required in a prime minister. While one said eloquence, another knowledge, another toil, Pitt said patience. Rose, in a close intimacy, private and official, of twenty years, never once saw him out of temper. His family affections were warm and constant. His letters to his mother are pleasant to read. He was indeed the most dutiful of sons. His grief at the death of his favorite sister, Lady Harriet, and her husband, Mr. Elliot, was beyond description. His kindness to his oppressed nephews and nieces, the Stanhopes, was constant and extreme. The father who harassed them had long quarreled with him. It was truly remarked that he unselfishly made a great sacrifice and cheerfully ran a great risk when, after a life of bachelorhood, he took his niece Hester to keep house for him. She led him an uneasy life with her terrible frankness of speech but he bore all with composure, and she repaid him with the rare devotion of that vain, petulant nature which fretted off into something like insanity. Once and only once he formed an attachment which might have led to marriage, though he liked women's society, and is even said to have drunk a toast out of the shoe of a famous Devonshire beauty. But in 1796 his feeling for Eleanor Eden, the eldest daughter of Lord Auckland, once so far that he wrote to her father to declare his affection, but to avow that circumstances which, however, he did not specify, made it necessary for him to renounce any idea of marriage. The obstacles he declared were decisive and insurmountable. Auckland reluctantly concurred, but urged that, as a mark of good feeling, he should receive the privy seal to this suggestion. Pitt did not listen. He broke off his relations with the Eden family, a privation which he sensibly felt. Two years afterwards, the young lady married Lord Hobart, afterwards Lord Buckinghamshire. Lady Hester said that this nearly broke Pitt's heart, but Lady Hester's statements do not impress one with conviction. Lord Holland, also an indifferent authority on this subject, says that Pitt paid attentions to Miss Duncan, who was afterwards Lady Dalrymple Hamilton. But there seems no further confirmation of this statement. However, though we cannot imagine a married Pitt more than a married Pope, it is clear that he did seriously contemplate the married state, and cynics may remark with a smile that he afterwards showed a certain dislike of Lord Buckinghamshire and a reluctance to admit him to the cabinet, though other reasons might well account for that. His life was pure. In an age of eager scandal, it was beyond reproach. There was indeed within living recollection a doorkeeper of the House of Commons, who from some chance resemblance was said to be his son. But Pitt's features, without the intellect and the majesty which gave them life, lend themselves easily to chance resemblance and ignoble comparison. Raxall hints at a licentious amour but even Raxall expresses his skepticism. The austerity of his morals inspired many indecorous epigrams, but also a real reverence. His one weakness, it is said, was for port wine. We have seen that he was reared on port from his childhood, and when he arrived at man's estate, he was accustomed to consume a quantity surprising in those days and incredible in these— The habits of that time were convivial, but it is not till Pitt's health was broken that the wine which he took seems to have had more effect on him than a like measure of lemonade. Bishop Tomlin has left a memorandum stating that never before 1798 did he see Pitt the least affected by wine. Addington, when questioned on this point, declared, that Mr. Pitt liked a glass of port very well and a bottle better. Sometimes, indeed, the speaker, who himself was decorously convivial, had to stop the supplies and say, Now, Pitt, you shall not have another drop, though Pitt's eloquence would usually extract another bottle. Addington, however, averred that never had he seen Pitt take too much when he had anything to do, except once when he was called from table to answer an unexpected attack in the House of Commons. It was then so clear that he was under the influence of wine as to distress his friends. One of the clerks of the house was indeed made ill by it. He had a violent headache. An excellent arrangement, remarked Pitt. I have the wine, and he has the headache. We read of hard drinking at the Duchess of Gordon's of Thurlow, Pitt, and Dundas, Galloping home after a dinner at Old Jenkinson's, through a turnpike, the keeper of which in default of payment discharged his blunderbuss at them, and of Stoddard the painter, being told by an innkeeper, as Pitt and Dundas rode off, I don't care who they are, but one of those gentlemen drank four, and the other three bottles of port last night. But all this must be judged by the habits of that time, and not of ours.' when Scottish judges sat on the bench with their stoop beside them, when at least one viceroy of Ireland could die of drink, when Fox and Norfolk would, after a debate, get through a great deal of wine, and what this last meant by a great deal it is scarcely possible to compute, when the English clergy were said to have considered their cellars more than their churches, when a great Scottish patron only stipulated that the ministers whom he chose should be good-natured in their drink, when a university common room could only be faced by a seasoned toper, when Lord Eldon and his brother could drink any given quantity of port, it is hardly conceivable, if Pitt had been guilty of habitual excess, that Wilberforce should have been his constant host or guest at dinner. There is, however, little doubt that if he dined with a party now it would be thought that he drank a good deal, and while the Tories said that he died of a patriot's broken heart, the Whigs averred that he died of port. But in this, as in so much else, it must be constantly reiterated that he must be judged by the temper of his own times and not of ours. He was tall and slender in appearance, The early portraits by Gainsborough represent a face of singular sweetness and charm. The last portrait by Lawrence, who only saw him a few weeks or months before his death, represents a figure of rare majesty with powdered hair. His hair, however, was untouched by time. It remained to the last of a chestnut hue, without a suspicion of gray. So much one gathers from a lock cut off by Bishop Tomlin on the day of Pitt's death, which survives in an envelope which still contains the powder. Of this picture a replica was painted for the king and hangs in the great gallery at Windsor. One who had sat with him in Parliament and who survived until this generation said that he had a port wine complexion, but the most brilliant eye ever seen in a human face. Much the same description as is given of Sheridan's appearance. Hopner, who painted Pitt from the life for his colleague Mulgrave in 1805, gives him tints of this kind. As Wilberforce said on seeing Hopner's portrait, his face anxious, diseased, reddened with wine, and soured and irritated by disappointments. Poor fellow, how unlike my youthful Pitt. Fox said that he could see no indications even of sense in Pitt's face, Did you not know what he is? You would not discover any. Gray thought otherwise, but Raxall agrees with Fox. It was not till Pitt's eye lent animation to his other features, which were in themselves tame, says Raxall, that they lighted up and became strongly intelligent. In his manners, Pitt, if not repulsive, was cold, stiff, and without sincerity and amenity he never seemed to invite approach or to encourage acquaintance. From the instant that Pitt entered the doorway of the House of Commons, he advanced up the floor with a quick and firm step, his head erect and thrown back, looking neither to the right nor to the left, nor favoring with a nod or a glance any of the individuals seated on either side, among whom many who possessed five thousand pounds a year would have been gratified even by so slight a mark of attention. It was not thus that Lord North or Fox treated the Parliament. His nose, said Romney, was turned up at all mankind. How many a vote he and Peel and Lord John Russell may have lost by this shy self-concentration of demeanor, or how many have been gained by the sunny manner of Palmerston, or the genial face memory of Henry Clay must remain a permanent problem for the student of politics and man. His action as a speaker—that might have been supposed to resemble the majestic stateliness which a later generation admired in Lord Grey—was vehement and ungraceful, sawing the air with windmill arms, sometimes almost touching the ground. Unfriendly critics said that his voice sounded as if he had worsted in his mouth but the general testimony is that it was rich and sonorous. Fox never used notes, and Pitt rarely. A specimen of these is given by Lord Stanhope. His eloquence must have greatly resembled that with which Mr. Gladstone has fascinated two generations, not merely in pellucid and sparkling statement, but in those rolling and interminable sentences which come thundering in mighty succession like the Atlantic waves on the Biscayan coast, sentences which other men have neither the understanding to form nor the vigor to utter. It seems, however, to have lacked the variety and the melody, the modulation of mood, expression, and tone which lent such enchantment to the longest efforts on the least attractive subjects of his great successor. To Pitt's speeches, says a contemporary, by no means prejudiced in his favor, nothing seemed wanting; yet there was no redundancy. He seemed, as by intuition, to hit the precise point. Where, having attained his object as far as eloquence could affect it, he sat down. This is high praise indeed, but it can hardly be believed that Pitt was never open to the charge of diffuseness. In those days. The leader stood forth as the champion of his party and stated every argument in a speech of exhaustive length. Private members had little to do but to cheer. It was, however, calculated as an almost certain matter of proportion that if Fox were three hours on his legs, the reply of Pitt would not exceed two. Butler says, not untruly, that as Fox was verbose by his repetitions so was Pitt by his amplifications. Neither had before him the terror of the verbatim report, and the coming specter of that daily paper in which the evening's speaking bears so ill the morning's reading. Had it been otherwise, they must have condescended to compression, and probably to those notes which guide and restrain argument. Sheridan, indeed, said of Pitt that his brain only worked when his tongue was set a-going, like some machines that are set in motion by a pendulum or some such thing, but this opinion bears the stamp of a certain envy of Pitt's ready and spontaneous flow of speech felt by one to whom laborious and even verbal preparation was necessary. Lord Aberdeen, who was Pitt's ward and had heard all three, preferred the oratory of canning to that of either Pitt or Fox. Sheridan made a more famous speech than either, but no criticism can now affect Pitt's place as an orator. Wilberforce himself, no mean orator, writing in 1825, spoke of the brilliancy of the speaking of that time when Brougham and Canning and Plunkett were at their best, but said also that it was on a distinctly lower level than that of Pitt and Fox. The stupefaction produced by Pitt's slave trade speech on the greatest minds of the opposition Has already been recorded. Dudley, the most fastidious of judges, breaks into enthusiasm in speaking of him. Fox did not seek to disguise his admiration. He said that although he himself was never in want of words, Pitt was never without the best words possible. His diction, indeed, was his strongest point. His power of clear, logical statement, so built up as to be an argument in itself, was another and as a constant weapon too often used, he had an endless command of freezing, bitter, scornful sarcasm, which tortured to madness. This gave him a curious ascendancy over the warm and brilliant natures of Erskine and Sheridan, over whom he seemed to exercise a sort of fascination of terror. We can scarcely conceive an assembly, in which there were greater orators than Erskine, Wyndham, Sheridan, Gray, and even Burke, but all contemporaries placed Pitt and Fox on a level apart. This alone enables us to compute their genius, and when we consider their generation and those that preceded, we cannot but arrive at the belief that eloquence and stenography are not of congenial growth, and that in an inverse ratio, as the art of reporting improves, the art of oratory declines. It is said that Pitt did not read much or care to talk about books. It is probable that he had no time to keep abreast of modern literature, though we know that he delighted in Scott. But we possess a graphic account of the little sitting dining room at Hollywood, with the long easy chair on which the weary minister would throw himself, below that hanging shelf of volumes, among which a thumbed and dog-eared Virgil was specially paramount. His rooms at Hallwood and Walmer, says one of his friends, were strewn with Latin and Greek classics. Lord Grenville, a consummate judge, declared that Pitt was the best Greek scholar he ever conversed with. He was, adds Wellesley, as complete a master of all English literature, as he undoubtedly was of the English language." He especially loved Shakespeare and Milton and recited with exquisite feeling the finer passages of Paradise Lost. It is unnecessary to multiply testimony of this kind, but it is also somewhat unexpectedly recorded that he relished the adventures of Telemachus and especially enjoyed the speeches of the dreary mentor in that too didactic tale. His well-known anxiety to possess a speech of Bolingbroke's seems to have arisen rather from curiosity as to an orator so renowned than from any peculiar admiration of his style. He considered, we are told, Gilles Blas, the best of all novels. All this does not amount to much. Few prime ministers are able to give much time to literature when in office, especially at a period when an interminable dinner took up all the leisure that could be snatched from work. As an author, he did little. His collected works would scarcely fill a pamphlet. During his last stay at Bath, two of his colleagues committed a crime worthy of the lowest circle of the inferno by sending him their poems to correct. What perhaps was venial to canning was unpardonable in Mulgrave, but it shows that he was considered as great an authority in literature as in politics. Of his own poetic faculty, nothing remains— but the dubious reputation of having contributed a verse to the University of Göttingen, two couplets which he bestowed on Mulgrave, and of which it suffices to say that they are not to be distinguished from Mulgrave's own, a translation of a note of Horace, and some lines not less insignificant. They are on the same level as the stanzas which we unluckily possess of Chatham's, In prose we have only the political articles which he wrote for the anti-Jacobin, of which those on finance in Numbers 2, 3, 12, and 25, as well as the review of the session in 35, are by him. At least Canning has so ascribed them, in his own handwriting, in his own copy. He has been loudly blamed for his insensibility to literary merit, So far, at least, as such sensibility is shown by distribution of the funds and patronage of the crown, we do not know what were his principles as to such matters, for during his twenty years of government he was, though assailed by Matthias and Montague, never taken to task in Parliament on that subject. This fact, while it deprives us of his explanation, throws so remarkable a light on contemporary opinion as possibly to illustrate his own. If he was convinced that literature like war thrived best upon subsidy, he was culpable indeed, but it is conceivably possible that he may have thought differently. He may have believed that money does not brace but relax the energies of literature, that more Miltons have remained mute and inglorious under the suffocation of wealth than under the frosts of penury, that, in a word, half the best literature of the world has been produced by duns. Pensionless poetry may at least bear comparison with that which has flourished upon bounties. Under the chill rays of Pitt, we have Burns, Wordsworth, Cooper, Southey, Scott, Coleridge, Canning, Crabb, Joanna Bailey, Rogers, and even under the tropical effusion of 1,200 a year, dispensed in heat drops of 50 or a 100 pounds apiece, we have had nothing conspicuously superior. It is not easy at any rate to cite the names of many eminent men of letters who have received material assistance from the state since the time of Pitt. Hooke and Moore had reason even to curse the ill-judged bounty of their country, and yet they were provided with lucrative offices. Nothing Pitt may have thought is so difficult as for a parliamentary government to encourage literature. It may begin by encouraging a Shakespeare but it is far more likely to discover a pie. You start with a genius and end with a job. Apart from these arguments, a more practical and pressing plea can be urged for Pitt. Government then rested largely on patronage. He lived in that respect from hand to mouth, and when he had but half satisfied the demands of politics, there was no surplus for literature. End of section 21.